In ancient Greek theater, masks were often worn by the actors, and they were used for uh, a number of purposes. They were used as actors would play different characters. One mask would be one character, another mask would be another character. There were also masks that displayed different emotions. So an actor would put on one mask to display, say, happiness, and another mask to display fear. The masks also provided a single actor with the opportunity to wear many masks during the course of a production so that that actor can play more than one role. Interestingly, because of this, the ancient Greek word for actor or stage performer, hupokrites, that word is the, um, it's the historical origin of our English word hypocrite. It came to refer to a person who pretended to be something that they were not. And that's something that we are going to see in the passage before us as we are introduced to two people who did that exact thing. Now before we get there, let me provide an early point of clarification. Some people are reluctant to come to church because they say, I don't want to come to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Please understand, a hypocrite is not a Christian who sins. You will not find a Christian who doesn't sin this side of eternity. All those Christians, they're in heaven. <laughs> they are spirits of just men and women made perfect. The perfect church is up there. They're in the New Jerusalem. So there's not going to be a church on this side of eternity where you're going to find any Christian who is not going to sin. A Christian isn't marked by sinlessness. A Christian ought to be marked by confession of sin, repentance of sin, hatred towards sin, a lifestyle of obedience, albeit not a sinless kind of perfection. A Christian ought to be marked by those things. But a hypocrite is someone who pretends to be something they're not, and they feel comfortable doing it. A hypocrite is a pretender. A hypocrite is an actor. They act like they walk in the light, while in reality, behind the scenes, they walk in darkness. They are like those ancient Greek actors who say have one mask for one role. The role among the church people would be one instance. But then they have another mask or, or, another mask or different masks for the other roles. Maybe a certain mask they wear when they're around people or family or so on. They are comfortable pretending. They're not concerned with what God thinks. They're concerned with what people think. Their concern isn't sanctification, it's simply their reputation. They're not concerned with keeping God's commandments, they're concerned with keeping up appearances. So a hypocrite is not an honest Christian who, while walking in the light, still sins and hates when it happens. A hypocrite is a pretender. Somebody who feels comfortable in his or her pretense. Somebody who is living a lie and to some degree or another, is comfortable doing it. Jesus had a lot to say about this sin. Uh, the Greek word for hypocrite, as I've told you, hypocrites, it's used 18 times in the New Testament. I'm not talking about the word hypocrisy. That's another word, and that's used uh, a different amount of times. But the word hypocrite, used 18 times in the New Testament. Jesus used that word 14 times in the Gospel of Matthew. So if you were just to go through the Gospel of Matthew, you'd get a little bit of an introduction to how Jesus feels about hypocrisy and to what hypocrisy essentially is. You go into Matthew chapter 6 during the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is teaching his hearers not to give 
like the hypocrites. Not to pray like the hypocrites. Not to fast like the hypocrites. How do the hypocrites give and pray and fast? Well, they do those things to be seen by men. They put on an outward show, but inwardly they're not concerned with who they actually are. It's more about what people see than about what God sees. You go on into Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus rebuked the person who sought to remove a speck from his brother's eye while there was a plank in his own eye, saying, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 5. Quick note here. It is good to help a brother or sister get a speck out of their eye. But something's wrong if you're gawking at the speck in your brother or sister's eye while you have a plank protruding from your own eye. And that's what Jesus is getting at right there. In Matthew 15, 7, Jesus told the scribes and Pharisees, these individuals who, when you look in the context, kept man-made traditions in order to excuse themselves from God-ordained responsibilities. They were those who honored God with their lips while their hearts were actually far from Him. Jesus said to them, Matthew 15, verse 7, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you. And then he went on to quote from Isaiah 29, verse 13. In Matthew 22, the Pharisees and the Herodians, unlikely allies who joined together to try to trap Jesus in his words. You see that in Matthew 22, verse 15. They come together and before they try to trap Jesus in his words, they try to flatter him. They tell him things like this. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, i.e. you don't court man's favor. For you do not regard the person or the face of men. You just teach the way of God in truth is what they're saying. Matthew 22, verse 16. And Jesus knew that their words were really a pretense, a covering for their true intentions. Which is why verse 18 says that Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? He saw right through it. To use language from Proverbs 26, verse 23, they had fervent lips with a wicked heart, right? So outwardly, they look like they're affectionate towards Jesus, fervent for Jesus, but inside their hearts were wicked. That's why the rest of the Proverbs says, such ones are like earthenware covered with silver dross. In other words, like a, like a kind of ordinary, common clay pot, but it has this kind of silver coating, silver veneer, so you think that it's something that it's not by the outward display. Jesus used the word hypocrite a lot in Matthew 23. Seven times he uses it in Matthew 23 when rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. Here's one for instance of that. In Matthew 23, verse 27, Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Now, so much more that can be said. We can go through Old Testament passages. We can go through more New Testament passages. Jesus warned his hearers, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Because when that stuff gets in, it could start spreading. It could do damage. And it seems like early on in the history of the New Testament church, God was going to address that problem head on. And the leaven of hypocrisy was not going to spread in the early days of the church. 
Ultimately, we know there'd be sin and it would, but it's as though God was going to make a statement in Acts chapter 5 to stop the spread of leaven. You might say that we are helped in this passage not to over-idealize or romanticize the early church. There were problems even in those days that seemed idyllic when you look at the opening chapters of the book of Acts. And you have to love that Luke is telling the truth here, right? If Luke was just trying to paint a picture of all roses and all flowers and everything is beautiful, he wouldn't have included the weeds. And here we have not only the good things that were happening in the early church and like the end of Acts 4, for instance, but we have an instance like this with two individuals that we are going to be introduced to. We'll see all of that and we'll see some other important takeaways as we begin our study of Acts chapter 5. We begin in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where we read, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. You're one word in to Acts chapter 5, and you are meant, I think, to feel a sense of contrast. Right there at the beginning of verse 5 in our English text, the word but. It's a conjunction, can be used in the consecutive sense, going from one event to another, or it can be used in the contrastive sense. And I think that's the point here. Don't forget where we were in Acts chapter 4. You had this idyllic picture of the church that people were selling property that they had. People were selling homes that they had. And they were bringing the proceeds to the feet of the apostles so that it might be distributed to those who had need. And then Luke provided us with an exhibit A, if you will, Barnabas. This man who was from Cyprus, likely had a plot of land in Cyprus, sold that land, likely selling the surplus that he had. And then he brings the proceeds to the apostles' feet to be distributed to those who had need. Remember, the apostles gave him a nickname. His, na his name was not Barnabas. His name was Joseph, or some older manuscripts say Joseph. And he received the nickname Barnabas, son of encouragement, son of consolation. So perhaps as this was happening, and as the church saw this magnanimous uh, offering, this offering of self-sacrifice by Barnabas, perhaps there were individuals there like Ananias and Sapphira. And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps they saw the nickname that the apostles gave to Barnabas, and they're like, okay, this is pretty good. Maybe we'll do the same thing as well. I don't know what their motives were. But they here are contrasted with Barnabas in light of where they're positioned in the text. You might say we have a contrast between godly self-sacrifice and ungodly self-exalting hypocrisy. What do we know about Ananias and Sapphira? Not much. We know that they had nice names. Ananias, when you get to the Hebrew equivalent of his name, his name, uh, Hananiah, would be the Hebrew equivalent, would mean God covers or God protects interesting bit of trivia, that was the name of Shadrach. His Hebrew name was Hananiah. So it was a good name, a popular name in the scriptures. You'll see it more in the book of Acts. And then there's Sapphira. Sapphira, who might have been named after that precious stone, the sapphire. That's one possibility, uh, a likelihood, I would think. Also, her name might have been derived from the Aramean, which would make that word mean, have an origin meaning beautiful. So they had beautiful names, but they had, as we're going to see in the text, bad behavior. They didn't live up to their names, at least not in this account. 
We're told that they sold a possession. Uh, right here, we're not told what that possession is. We find out a little bit after this. Verse 3 and verse 8, we find out that they sold land. So they had land. They sold it. They probably, like others, had excess, saw the needs that were happening in the local church, sold what they had, and they were going to bring it to the apostles' feet. And then in verse 2, we get an introduction to the problem, right? That Ananias kept back part of the proceeds. More about that in a moment. But then the problem is compounded because we're told his wife also being aware of it. And he brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. As will become clear, the issue was not that he didn't give everything. The more fundamental issue was that he and Sapphira agreed to lie about what they were giving. As we'll see, that will become clear. I also want you to see this. They were in agreement. Their husband and wife here, they talked about this. They were together. They established likely how they were even going to present the gift, that they were going to present part of it and not all of it, as though it were all of it. They were going to go and bring it to the apostles. Apparently, Ananias was the one who was going to lead the way, and then Sapphira would come after. And I love, I love when husbands and wives are on the same page. But it has to be the right page. They're in agreement. But it's bad agreement. So if you're on the same page, it's a good thing if you're on the right page. If you're on the same page, it's a really bad thing if it's the wrong page. And so let me say right here, this is a good moment to exhort husbands and wives. To exhort one another, encourage one another towards godliness. You ought to be dissuading one another from sin. And not persuading one another to sin. You are to be helping one another to seek first the kingdom of God. Helping one another to prioritize the local church and the Lord's day. You are to exhort one another to serve the assembly of God's people. That's what you are meant to do. You shouldn't be in agreement on the wrong page. You want to be in agreement on the right page. Helping one another in the path of godliness. Helping one another to do ministry. Among the many things, and there are many things that are not known about John Calvin, one is that he appears to have had quite a happy marriage, albeit uh, a relatively short one, with his wife, um, Idolette. Idolette was a um, young widow. She had two children uh, from her previous marriage, and she had lost her husband. She struggled with um, poor health herself, and then when Calvin and her were married, they were married for eight years before she went home to be with the Lord. They did much ministry together, and they suffered, when you know the history, they suffered much loss together as well. Well, Calvin would write in a letter um, speaking about the loss of his wife, these words, he would say, Mine is no common source of grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life, of one of who, had it been so ordered, would not only have been the willing sharer of my poverty, but even of my death. During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the entire course of her illness. She was more anxious about her children than about herself. You might say that Ananias and Sapphira are an example of what married couples ought not to do. And one of the many contrasts that could be presented in the scriptures, say like Aquila and Priscilla, or in history like Calvin and Idolette, are a contrast to what Ananias and Sapphira did. Back to the text. The question now that you might have in your minds is why did they do it? 
Why? Did they want eminence? Did they want reputation? Did they make a financial commitment to give the whole thing? Did they make it unto the Lord and make it publicly? And then when the proceeds came in, they're like, well, this is a lot of proceeds here. We could do a lot of things with these proceeds. Maybe we'll just give a certain portion of it. And they reneged on their commitment, professed commitment to God and man. They lied for some reason. We're not told the exact reason, but I think those questions help provide us with some hypotheses. One other textual note I want you to see. If you look in the text, look at that word kept back. Kept back. Ananias kept back a portion. It's translated well here, kept back. Could be rendered as set apart. Interestingly, it could also be rendered as purloin. Like purloin, that's not a word I use every day. Basically, it's a word that means to kind of pilfer or steal, to kind of hold back something that's not yours. Um, this word is actually used in the Septuagint in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, to speak of Achan's sin. Remember when the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan? Remember when the walls of Jericho came down? The children of Israel were not supposed to take anything from Jericho. All of it was to be devoted to destruction. But Achan, he saw a beautiful garment. And Achan saw 200 pieces of silver, some wedge, some amount of gold. And he took it and he put it in his tent. And doubtless his family was complicit in it. Because his tent, however big it was, they would know that all that stuff was there. And you remember that God judged that sin very publicly, right? The Israelites went up to Ai or to Ai and they lost in battle. And then it was revealed to Joshua that there was sin in the camp. And ultimately, it is found out that Achan was the occasion for that sin. And what did God do? God judged that sin very publicly. Achan and his family. In a similar way, just as Israel was at the beginning of their life in the promised land, at the beginning of the New Testament church here in the book of Acts, it's as though this statement was going to be made in a like manner. That God was going to make a statement very definitively that although He is a God of grace, He is also a God who is holy. He is not a God to be trifled with. So Ananias went and he brought the proceeds. He laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. And then things went in a direction that he surely did not anticipate. Verses, five, uh, verses 3 and 4 of Acts 5 read, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You see the issue? The issue right here in verses 3 and 4 was that Ananias lied. That's the main issue. He was under the influence of the father of lies, to use language from John chapter 8. This is strong language. Think of the language here. Why has Satan filled your heart? It's as though his heart was so under the influence of Satan that there were, was not any room for other influences. This language is undoubtedly strong. And so the issue isn't simply that he kept back part of the proceeds, the price of the land. The issue is that he lied about what he gave. And how did Peter know this? Did Peter have some sort of like scoop as to what the amount of the land was when he sold it for or something like that? I think the answer is clear that he knew it by divine revelation. 
And so Peter, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he asks Ananias, why? Why has Satan filled your heart? I think that connotes a measure of yielding, of yielding to the influence of Satan and to his temptation. Like Cain, when sin was crouching at the door, but he should have been master over it, Ananias yielded to that temptation from without. But look at verse 4. You see that the temptation not only came from without, the temptation emerged from within as well. Peter said to him, Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? So that James 1 dynamic of sin kind of starting on the inside, and he's prompted from the outside. He's yielding to temptation from without. He's yielding to temptation from within. And my guess is just my opinion is that Ananias didn't think of himself in any measure as being so influenced, having his heart so filled by Satan. There was probably some rationale for his behavior, and I'd have to think that he didn't see his sin as all too serious. Please just take a moment, and by the grace of God, know that if you have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your life, it's more serious than you can imagine. You want to see how serious sin is? You just go to Genesis 3. Don't eat from that tree. And then the moment you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. Death enters into humanity via sin. There's separation from God. There's going to be physical death that happens after that. All because of one transgression. Sin is a very serious thing in the sight of God. And I think Ananias did not have a clue, although he ought to have had, as to how serious this sin was. And furthermore, he acted as though God couldn't detect the fraud. Peter told Ananias that he lied to the Holy Spirit. It's as though he was testing the Holy Spirit, to use language that we're going to see a little bit later on in Acts 5, as though God wasn't going to be, you know, wasn't going to be so moved by his sin, wasn't going to detect his sin. So he lied, not merely to men, but to God. You think of how David said, right, in Psalm 51, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And he sinned against other people, doubtless, Bathsheba, Uriah, but ultimately it was a sin against God. That's kind of the idea, I think, that's going on here. Now let me make a point of application, and let me um, also point out a couple of things doctrinally that, that I think is helpful for us. We have to be careful about lying to God. I think one of the places where that can happen that we might not be aware of is in the songs that we sing. We have to be very careful. I read this week of how Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, a man after my heart in this regard, he told his congregation that he wouldn't let them sing the third stanza of At Calvary. Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. He said, you see, if God acted the same way today that he did in the fifth chapter of Acts, you'd have to have a morgue in the basement of every church and a mortician on the pastoral staff. Mm. And that can happen. We have to be on alert for these kind of things, right? I love you more than ever, saying words in some shape or form as though we're saying words that don't reflect our actual feeling in the moment. We have to be careful. And it can happen even with worship songs. It can happen even with hymns. There are songs that we do not do here. Hymns that have a lot of lines that I love so very much because they get to some lines where you're making these great declarations that maybe you don't feel in that moment. So you have to be careful. We all have to be careful. 
We've done this kind of thing throughout the years where our words in one way or another has not matched our feelings, the reality that was truly beneath the surface. We don't want to do that. We'll see more of that as we go through the text. A couple of doctrinal points here briefly. Verses 3 and 4 are helpful for you to have in your mind because they are a clear refutation against the wrong interpretation of verses in Acts 2 and Acts 4 that say the early church practiced and taught socialism or communism. Very clearly, in light of what Peter says here to Ananias, you see that the property, while it remained, was under Ananias' control. And when he sold the land, the proceeds were under his control as well. There was no legislation or command for everybody to divest themselves of any or all property. This was an act of spirit-wrought generosity that was voluntary. I talked about that last week, but I wanted to remind you that these are verses that you could go to to clearly see that. Also, verses 3 and 4 are a great place to go to make the case, there are other places you can go as well, to make the case that the Holy Spirit is deity. Right? You look at verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Then you look at verse 4. You have not lied to men, but to God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Also, I think that argues for his personhood. He can be lied to even as he can be grieved, even as he teaches. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is the one who proceeds from the Father and the Son. He is truly God, co-equal in essence with the Father and the Son. Back to the narrative. Verses 5 and 6 read, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Peter doesn't even pronounce the sentence. He just communicated the gravity of the offense, lying to the Holy Spirit, and the sentencing just happened. Some think that Ananias might have been so shocked by his sin being so publicly exposed that he essentially had a cardiac arrest, that he had a heart attack in light of the, the fear of that moment. I would say, my, my thoughts are, even if you were to say that, how do you account for Sapphira's forthcoming death? Not to give away the story, but you've already heard me do it in the scripture reading. I think everything points here to divine imposition as opposed to an outworking of natural events guided by God's providence. At the beginning of the New Testament church, God was making it abundantly clear that he is holy. You are under the new covenant. It is a covenant of grace. Yet at the same time, he's still the same holy God. He's not to be tri trifled with. You see this not only with the sin of Achan being judged and his family um, coming under capital punishment as he did. You see this also in the case of Nadab and Abihu. You remember in Leviticus chapter 10, not long after the establishing of the tabernacle, not long after the establishing of the priesthood, Nadab and Abihu offered profane fire, unauthorized fire before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 10 verse 1, and in verse 2 we're told that a fire went out from Yahweh and devoured them, and they died before Yahweh. Right after that, we're told, Moses communicates this to Aaron. This is the word of the Lord through him. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, 
I must be glorified. God is holy. And again, as I've told you, I'll say it again, it appears that this important fact was being established right here in a very pressing way in the New Testament church. As a consequence, we read, so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. The second half of verse 5. You can imagine why great fear would come upon people. They hear about this circumstance and they're reminded of God's hatred of sin, God's hatred of lying, God's hatred of hypocrisy. They're reminded of God's holiness and fear befell the people. God really does behold the actions of people. He sees what's going on. He cannot be lied to or deceived. And that fear, I think, would be a great deterrent from sin. Uh, More about that when we get to the last verse of our text today. Um, there's, a, there's a movie uh, that Mike Diaz had sent to me uh, on the book of Acts that has the verses um, basically being recounted as actors say the verses throughout the course of the production. And um, in this part of the movie, you see somebody recounting, um, recounting these events of Acts 5. And as these events are being recounted, you see the listeners like with their eyes opened and just kind of stirred like there's like a fear on their faces as they're hearing it, which I thought well connoted how people would react in hearing this story. Great fear came upon all those who heard these things. In verse 6, we're told, And the young men uh, that arose wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So the body wasn't to lie there. They buried him. But first, they would wrap him up. Think of what Joseph of Arimathea did with the body of Jesus, right? Took him down from the cross, wrapped him in linen, and so on, and then prepared to bury him. So the body wasn't to stay there. They made haste to move that body. They would have to bring the body outside of the city, and the body would be buried. And they would come back, and they would have more work to do a little bit later on. Here, I think, I want to give an exhortation here that I think is, I was excited to give this exhortation. I think we have here an example for young men in the church. Let me just say, I I, I look at this text, I don't know who these young men were, but I can't help but love the fact that they stepped up and they did this and they didn't wait on older men to wrap up the body and to carry it out and to bury it. The younger men did that. And so let me just exhort all the young men in the church. You don't have to see yourself as waiting till you're like 25 or 28 and then I'll serve the church. Then I'll serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Serve Him right now. Use your strength. And one of the ways you could do that is when things are getting moved. Let's say, for instance, when all these chairs get moved and the tables come out for Thursday night classes, how awesome it would be for young men to rise up and say, I want to do that. I don't know what ministry opportunities there are, but I know that this room gets renovated for Thursday night classes, and I want to be here whenever it can be done, and I want to use my strength to do that. I don't want the older men to do that. I want to do that. When agape meal happens, sign me up. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be here to use my strength and to help. There's a bunch of ways in which young men, young women, and so on can help in the church. But I read this text and I thought how neat it was that the young men got up, speedily arose is like kind of the connotation that you get, and they're the ones that wrap up the body and bring the body out. They didn't leave it to the old men to do. They were found, as one commentator said, eminently useful. So please, don't underestimate the way in which you could be used in the body. But that's an exhortation for young men. Uh, You see people carrying things, You see people moving things. It's a moment where you say, okay, that's me. That's where I can step up. I don't want you getting hurt. I don't want anybody getting hernias or anything like that. 
But at the same time, it's the younger men who are in positions to do those things without those things happening, uh, more so than older men. Um, back to the narrative, verse 7. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Don't you wonder why she's coming in three hours later? I don't know why she's coming in three hours later. Was she just taking a while to get ready? Maybe. Was she out shopping with the proceeds that were held back? I don't know. Was this part of the plan? Was it part of the plan? Was it part of the plan so that Ananias would go in first and that she would come in later? I don't know. For some reasons. Maybe to kind of elongate a time of appreciation and praise for the gift that was offered. We don't know. But she comes in three hours later, and I would think one possibility is, I'm not saying this is it, but this could be one possibility, that Ananias had brought the gift, and she wasn't maybe planning to go, but maybe he's gone for a while, maybe that's part of it, and now she's going to find out where her husband is, because she hasn't seen him come back. I don't know. She walks into the room, and I would think that wherever she walked into, she probably immediately got a sense that something was wrong. Probably expecting some measure of celebration, some measure of joy. She walks into whatever environment this is and likely notices that there's a sense of kind of eerie quiet. I don't know that for certain, but I would think that would be what the atmosphere would be like. And then we get to verse 8. And Peter answered her. Some say that's a Hebraism, just meaning that he began to speak. It could also maybe connote that she had asked something. Maybe, has anyone seen Ananias? And then Peter responds. Whatever the case is, the text tells us Peter answered her, and this is what he says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. That was the off-ramp. She had an opportunity to reject the wicked agreement that she had made. Just because she came in agreement with her husband doesn't mean she should have stayed in agreement with her husband when they had agreed to sin against the Lord. She's got an opportunity right here. She has an off-ramp. Did you sell the land for this much? And you would hope in this moment that she would say, okay, you know, I don't want to do this. This was wrong. I just, I, I just feel wrong about this. No, we didn't sell the land for that much. I can't lie to you. I can't lie to God regardless of what I said to Ananias. But she doesn't do that. She just simply says, yes, for so much. And in verse 9 we read, Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Theirs was a conspiracy of hypocrisy. They agreed together. They confirmed one another, not in obedience, but in disobedience. And in doing so, they were testing the Spirit of the Lord. They were acting as though the Holy Spirit is not the searcher of hearts. As though the Holy Spirit couldn't detect their sin. As though the Holy Spirit wouldn't be provoked by their sin. They were testing the Lord. Peter says to her, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Feel the weightiness of this. The last words that she hears is essentially that her husband died and now you're going to die as well. And then she dies. How frightful. Does it make you hate hypocrisy? One of the takeaways that I hope everybody in this room would have, I hope you are fearful of being a hypocrite. Every one of us in this room should be fearful 
of hypocrisy. Then, verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. Quite a day for these young men. (laughs) Matthew Poole noted the same sins meet with the same punishment. Now this is what I want you all to see here. I think this is so important. Some people would say, and I think wrongly, some people would say, wow, this was so harsh. And what I would want to ask you is do you not realize that this is the punishment that every single sin deserves? This, this is what sin deserves. Any sin, any sin in word or deed or thought, any sin deserves this. This passage should not only remind us of how holy God is, it should remind us of how gracious God is. How many times ought we have to die already? The wages of sin is death. Yet here you are, here I am, alive. Why? Because God is patient. Because God is gracious. Thanks be to God for His patience and His grace. And if you haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, here is a motivation to come. Because at some point, death does come. And you want to know that on the other side of death, there is a relationship that you have with the living God that will never be broken. And that can only be Yours through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the sins of all who would believe in him. Every sin, including every single act of hypocrisy. He died so that you could be free from the power of hypocrisy. And he died so that you could be freed from the punishment of hypocrisy. What grace! And all these little tokens of grace that you and I have now. The fact that we're alive and that we haven't died like Ananias and Sapphira did is a reminder of the greatest grace that God poured out his wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners and rose for our justification. May that stir you to appreciate the breath you have in your lungs and may you use that breath to praise the God who sent his son to die for your sins and rise from the grave. This text should do two things to us, at least. It should make us feel the weightiness of God's holiness. It should also make us understand better the greatness of His grace. Because this is what every sin deserves. You need a whole bunch of young men on constant watch to keep carrying people out of the church. And then you need more young men to carry them out of the church. None of us would make it too long at all. We'd sin in some way. You'd be here in the little church and all of a sudden people would be dropping left and right. God is gracious to us. He is. But may we get the message and say, you are holy. Hypocrisy is evil. Your grace is great. Therefore, I want my walk to match my talk. I want them both to be right. (laughs) Some people ask the question, I think a lot of people ask the question, were Ananias and Sapphira believers? A lot of people think that they were. A lot of people say that they were. They say, you know, they were among, they make, this, um, they make this guess, this hypothesis. They were among those who believed and were in one accord, Acts 4.32. And then they would say, well, when you look at, you know, 1 Corinthians 11, for instance, we know that there were those in the church who were believers who were chastised unto death for not partaking of the Lord's table in a worthy manner. 
They would also say, look, if they weren't believers, how would this serve as a warning for the church? These are some of the arguments that you would hear. We know that in 1 John, there is a sin that leads unto death. And we know that has application to believers also, because when you look in 1 Corinthians 11, you see that there were those who were sinning and participating in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. And that's why many were weak or sick or asleep, meaning they had died, which was a euphemism for sleep. So is there a possibility that they were believers? Yes, if, if, and this is where I think there should be a pumping of the brakes, and I don't think people should be dogmatic about this, because that language that's used early on in this chapter is strong. That their hearts, Ananias' heart was filled with Satan. Now, if that connotes him being possessed by Satan, then obviously he wasn't a believer. Because when the Holy Spirit is inside of a believer, Satan is not taking up residence where the Holy Spirit is. But could he have been under the influence of Satan? Could he have given Satan a foothold in that strong language to connote that he was under Satan's influence? If that's, if that's the connotation there, then doubtless, of course, the possibility is there that they were Christians who were judged. In verse 11, we read, So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. It's not difficult to see how this would be the case. Who hasn't lied? Any among you? Who hasn't lied? We've all lied. Who hasn't wrongfully chosen the praise of men over the praise of God? Who hasn't crossed over those boundary markers, yet alone other ones? My hope is for the people who heard this, even as for us now, I hope those boundary markers look different. Great fear came upon the church. For Ananias and Sapphira, they weren't even many miles over that border, you could say. They had just crossed that boundary line. And they were judged, chastised, depending on the dynamics of their standing with the Lord. And just because the church was under the new covenant then or is under the new covenant now, I want to remind you of what I've said already, that God should not be trifled with. Just because the cross puts away sin, thanks be to God that the cross puts away sin doesn't mean that we should trifle with sin and play with sin. The Spirit of God is a spirit of holiness. And doubtless the fear that came upon the church was a holy fear in which they were reminded of the seriousness of hypocrisy. Notice it didn't only come upon the church, it came upon all who heard these things. So those within the Jewish community, likely even the Jewish leadership had heard about this. I wonder, if we get a little bit later on in the book of Acts, if this factors into Gamaliel's advice, pocket this, we'll see this a little bit later on, if this factors into his advice as to how to deal with the apostles and this movement. This is also the first instance of the word church being used in the book of Acts. Assuming the um, Acts 2.47 reference um, isn't there in the earlier manuscripts. Honest Christians who are forthright, hating sin that they are warring against, should continue, in light of this text, passionately to desire to serve Christ and mortify sin and not be pretenders. Not be pretenders. I close with saying what I've already said to you. What should the reaction be from this text? I think there's a bunch of takeaways. You've heard some of them already as we've gone through the message. Husbands and wives spurring one another on towards holiness prioritizing Christ and his kingdom first. Young men yearning to serve and to step up, even as a young man here stepped up and so on. But I think the big takeaway for us would be 
to in a holy way tremble at God's holiness and to fear hypocrisy and to marvel at forgiveness. You know, um, the scriptures talk about forgiveness of God provoking fear as well. There is forgiveness with you that you ought to be feared. So it's, if you get the magnitude of God's holiness to a greater degree, if you get the magnitude of sin and hypocrisy to a greater degree, then my hope is that you will sing with more gusto as you see the grace of God to a greater degree. That would be the takeaway. Because this is what every sin deserves, yet by the grace of God I'm still alive. And He, if you are in Christ, put all of my sins upon Christ so that I could spend forever with Him. And so that now, in the here and now, I could walk in the light even as He is in the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we walk in the light, yet we have fellowship in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We are to walk in the light even as He is in the light. Are we going to be sinless this side of eternity? No. But should we be consistent? Yes. Should we make a practice of disobedience? No. Should we have a practice, a trajectory of obedience? Yes. What should fuel our obedience? Holy fear? Yes. What should fuel our obedience the most? Love. Love for Christ. Love for the gospel. And gratefulness for grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for this text. We, we know and we see, Lord, how desirous you are to preserve purity amongst your people, Lord. Practically. And this text is a reminder of a, to us of the seriousness of sin, the wickedness of hypocrisy, the greatness of your holiness, and the greatness of the grace that has saved us, yet alone even the grace that continues to sustain us. Father, I pray that for all of us that we would leave this passage walking more circumspectly, being more mindful that our heart and our words would be aligned Desiring above all the praise of God as opposed to the praise of men. Desiring to walk in holiness. Desiring to have our lives be a response to the greatness of your grace. Thank you, our Father who is in heaven. Let your name, especially in light of this text, be regarded as holy among your people. And may the greatness of your grace in the gospel fuel us, Lord, each one of us, to love you with a fresh spirit wrought fervency in light of how great the gospel is that we have been saved and reconciled to such a holy God that we can now call our Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.